And uh, we're going to finish up uh, the study we were dealing with on the issues of creation and evolution and the importance that it is to be settled on this matter. And, And I know it seems odd that we would preach on this perhaps even in our church, but it's amazing to me how many folks that are Christians that trust Christ as their Savior that... Uh, at least question whether or not evolution can be true, if all these scientists are saying it. And a lot of the faith of people is shaken because of this. And I want us to make sure that we are well-grounded in the biblical account of creation. Uh, we need, as, no, as Christians, we need no other reason to believe in creation than the fact that the Bible teaches it. Uh, we don't need anything further than that. Sad to say, though, a lot of Christians' faith uh, has been shaken by people who are, uh, by this world's credentials, educated, uh, intelligent, and they uh, believe that they are superior in their knowledge of and understanding of things than uh, other folks because of that. And they're very vocal about it. Um, and they have influenced now several generations of our young people. Um, I was listening even just this week to some other uh, preachers, men that stand in pulpits that they, they make the effort to try to make evolution and the Bible blend together and how that they, uh, rather than being in contradiction to each other, how they complement each other. And uh, I sat there and listened to their arguments and their logic, and in every single case, without exception, in every case, they had to make concessions about the truthfulness of the Scriptures. They had to question, they had to call into question the fact that, well, the Bible said that, but it didn't really mean that. And they get more involved in the, ter- in the interpretation of Scripture uh, than they do in what the Bible actually says. And you've got to be careful of this. Uh, there are things we certainly need to interpret in Scripture, but uh, we've got to be careful. In the Bible, uh, in the issue of Bible study, uh, one, of the key, one of the key rules after context, context, and context is if the plain sense makes perfect sense, then seek no other sense. If there's no reason to, to question the plain sense of it, then take it as literal. That's what it is. Uh, and when the, the account in Genesis deals with uh, evening and morning being the first day, it's very specific. It's dealing with the 24-hour period. And uh, so we've dealt with that. I spent a week or so doing, uh, giving you some scientific evidence. Um, the Bible is amazingly full of science. Uh, believe it or not, even though it's not a science book, it's amazingly full of science. <clears throat> that um, takes the observations of scientists and puts them in light of the uh, creation account and shows how that the things that uh, evolutionists are interpreting to be evidence for evolution are now actually being evidence for creation. And again, we as Christians don't need outside exterior evidences, but there are people we know and people that we talk to and Christians that will have their faith shaken that will need some of this to, to be able to recover some of these things in, in their faith. Um, I, I was reading an article uh, last week, not this week, but the week previous when I was down in Florida. An article came out that there's now a movement of a large number of scientists. They still hold to evolution, but now they say that rather than it taking billions of years, that it was a very sudden evolution, that it happened very quickly, because they're finding out more and more that evidence is pointing to a younger Earth. And uh, so now they've got it down from... I think it's 16 billion years is what they were at. They're, they've got it down, narrowed down now to only 70 million. So aren't we glad of that? They're getting closer to what it is. But they're down to 70 million on it now, and they're saying it, it, uh, it happened. It did, it did still evolve, but it happened very rapidly. And uh, so 
Uh, they're getting part of it right. It did happen rapidly. It happened in six days. Uh, so they're getting part of that right. Uh, it's amazing how two people can look at the same thing and, and see two different things and come to two different conclusions. We look at nature and we say what God did uh, in creation and what the flood did in just a few days. Uh, and the evolutionists look at it and say this is something that took thousands and millions and billions of years. And, uh, but uh, just being certain that we have established in our hearts, we as God's people do not need to try to reconcile God's Word with the Word with the world. It has never been uh, uh, something that has stood in complementary uh, agreement with the world. It has always stood in stark contrast to it. So we don't need to make an effort to try to make this book match up or line up with the evolutionary philosophy. And so uh, I, I spent a little bit of time, we gave, uh, the last time I was here on Wednesday night, uh, I dealt with the issue of dinosaurs because that's one of the bigger issues that evolutionists have a hard time with, saying they went extinct long before men. And so we gave some evidence about the fact that obviously dinosaurs were with men. I was doing some reading this week in the Bible and came across the word dragon in the Bible as in a list of other uh, known animals that we have today. And so obviously they were in existence in Bible times, and, and so we know that. Uh, those things are not certainly not uh, part of it. But let's look in now, if you will, in Matthew chapter 15. We're going to kind of draw this in and make the application of it uh, tonight. Lord willing, we'll get it all in. I've got a lot of notes, and so it may be tonight and next Wednesday night, but it's going to be kind of our concluding thoughts of this uh, because I want us to see how that uh, this truth in particular is so vitally tied to... Uh, social issues and moral issues that we are battling today in our society and uh, how it so strongly is tied to it as kind of a foundational thought that these things flourish on. And so let's take a look at this. Matthew chapter 15, if you will look with me in verse number... um, Did I get the wrong chapter here? I think I wrote the wrong chapter down. Ah... I apologize. I gave you the wrong chapter. Chapter, so I'm not going to use Matthew. Then we're going to go. <laughs> we're going to go instead. To, uh, let's go on to First Peter, uh, chapter number one. All right, First Peter, chapter number one. I don't know what I have. What happened there, Matthew? Am I in the right? Yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'll figure that one out. I wrote the wrong chapter down. I think. Uh, all right. So let's go to First Peter then. I'm sorry about that. Uh, because we can start here, and it'll, it'll take us the same, same direction. First Peter chapter number 1. There are four main questions that we have to answer uh, in life. One of them is, who am I? Uh, the other one is, uh, where did I come from? Um, the third one is, uh, why am I here? And the fourth one is, what happens after death? And uh, pretty much everybody that has ever lived has... Well, at one point or another, we may not have verbalized those questions, but we've tried to come to grips with those in our life. Uh, who am I? You know, what, what's, what's my purpose here on this earth? Where did I come from? Uh, what, what, is I, what is the purpose that I'm here for? And what happens when I die? Where am I going when I die? And these are four basic uh, philosophical questions that every man seems to struggle with in life. And uh, there's only two lines of thought. We either believe the Bible or we don't believe the Bible. And the Bible has good answers for those questions, and yet evolution does not. If you look with me in uh, this in First Peter chapter number one, and let's look in verse number eighteen. First Peter chapter one, and verse number eighteen. The Bible says this: For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from our from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, 
but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Uh, Peter's speaking here of the fact that the price that was paid to redeem you and I. Now, in the question of who am I and the evolutionist uh, mindset of things, they're going to say that we're nothing important. Uh, we're just a bunch of complex chemicals that just kind of came together and the universe kind of burped and here we are. You know, it's just all by accident. Um, and that we're a byproduct of this evolution. Um, and and that, that really, to be a, in the evolutionist viewpoint, as they follow through that line of thinking, they begin to, to get to the place where humans kind of are a problem to the universe. We're, we're the ones that are creating uh, global warming, and we're the ones that are overpopulating the world and using up all the world's resources. And, and so they, 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 they diminish the value of a life. Furthermore, they don't even acknowledge that there is a soul, an eternal soul. God looks at it, and from the very foundation of creation, man was deemed to be very special. In fact, out of all the things that he made, man is the only thing that God put his own hands on in forming. Everything else he spoke into existence. But when it came to man, he formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And this is the only creature he did this for. Man became a living soul. There was a great purpose, and God gave us a great purpose uh, in this. And so much so that I want us to understand tonight that we were so important to God. That He was willing, when we had, when we had disobeyed, when we had done things that condemned us uh, to perish in hell for eternity, we were so precious to God in His sight that He was willing to send His Son in our place. Think about that thought for a moment. I know we preach it and we teach it a lot and we hear it a lot. But oh, how special that is. That the God of heaven who made you and I, who could have easily just wiped the slate clean and started all over again, He decided instead to send His Son to die on the cross for you and I. This is how precious, how special we are in God's sight. That stands in stark contrast, doesn't it, to those of evolution? I've said that we're going to try to draw some some uh, uh, some application here and show how that this this idea of evolution and, and it's becoming more and more prevalent in our churches. I gave you some statistics a few weeks ago that we're now up to I think it was almost forty percent. I think it was thirty nine percent of those that are in our what we would call Bible preaching churches. Those that are uh, holding to at least a form of sound doctrine that 39% say that either evolution is true or could possibly be true. And we're talking about people who go to churches that say, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. We believe this is true. And their faith has been shaken. And as a result of this, they begin to question some of the moral laws of God because of the pressures of society. We're battling things today that we should not even have to battle. If, if we're a Christian nation, if we're a nation that set its rules and its laws and its government on the founding principles of Scripture, these are issues we shouldn't even be battling in the day that we live. But we're fighting this idea of, uh, of global warming and all of the tentacles that come from that, all of the, uh, the, the control and the regulation that that puts on people, where they begin to say these group of people are, are moral people and these group of people over here, they're immoral because they don't believe in it, they don't hold to that thing. Well, the evolutionist says, well, uh, man is the problem and the world's going to spin out of control if we don't do something about it. Man's got to do something about it. 
A Christian will look at it and say, God holds the universe in His hand. And there's nothing going to happen to the world until God's ready for it to happen. And I'm not saying we ought to go out here and just destroy the world and do everything to be unjust stewards of what God has entrusted to us. But on the other hand, we don't need to go around fretting and worrying and trying to make batteries for things and trying to uh, come up with all these regulations and things. And I'm not trying to become political tonight. I'm saying this, this ties into... This idea of evolution, that man doesn't, uh, that there is no God in control of everything, that man has to take his own destiny in his own hands. And it really, if you boil it down, comes to this. Evolution is a way for man to deify himself. He then becomes his own God. He becomes his own moral lawmaker. He does that which is right in his own eyes. He looks at everything that is... Uh, in nature, and he says, if there's going to be a change, I'm the only one that can do it. Uh, there's no dependence on God to handle these things. We're going to look at some of these uh, a little more closely here in just a moment. Uh, but it leads to no value being placed on life. And so murders become rampant. And boy, haven't we seen an uptick in murders in these last 20 or 30 years. Uh, suicides. Uh, kids, young people, young people uh, by the thousands are committing suicide every day. And, and there's no value to their life. They see no purpose in their life. And, and when you're taught that you're just a bunch of chemicals, you're taught that you were uh, evolved from animals and that when it's all over, it's all over, then if life gets too rough, just take your own life. It'll all be over. You won't have to deal with it anymore. And that's what evolution leads these young people to think. Creation says you're an eternal soul that's going to live somewhere for eternity. And God loved you so much, He wants you to spend it with Him. Oh, that we get this message across that once again God's people would stand up and put a halt to this false teaching and this, this indoctrination of minds that causes so many things contrary to God's Word. Abortion becomes commonplace because it's just a bunch of tissue in there. It's just a, just a bunch of growth in a woman's body. A Christian will look at it and say, well, the Bible says that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, that He knew me before I was even formed in the womb. He knew me. We're going to look at some of those things. Racism becomes an issue. We start having issues with uh, some being better than others, some people being better than others, because they were evolved from a higher line of things, or they were uh, they they are better because of their moral uh, their moral uh, standard on things. And boy, aren't we facing a lot of that today? Uh, I wouldn't call it racism, but it's the same type of thing that's going on between the things of the world and Christianity. Uh, there's, a, there's a disparaging of Christianity because they believe that Christians are the immoral people and that they're the moral people, that they've got the moral high ground. All that stems from, again, this idea of evolution, that we're just a product of our environment, that there is no, no uh, uh, God in heaven that we must answer to, but we must do that which is right in our own eyes. So many things that uh, this deals with. I want us to understand that the first question is answered who am I by God's Word? I am a man who has been made in the likeness and the image of God. I've been given an eternal soul. I want us to look at several things here uh, regarding this. Look with me in Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And it's important when you have friends and family of yours, uh, maybe even acquaintances of yours, that do believe in evolution, and there seems to be a devaluation of life in their philosophy and the way they handle life, that you show them the Scriptures. 
that there's something special in the eyes of God. I understand this, and there's times that we teach and we preach that we're nothing but sinners saved by the grace of God. And without God, we can do nothing. And there's a lot of truth to that. But in God's eyes, we are special. I was talking to someone here a few weeks ago, and they said, you know, I have a problem with depression because I read Scripture and I see how undone I am. And I see like Isaiah standing in the the throne room of God, and he says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I was talking to this person. They said, I get get down on myself a lot because I realize how how undone I am and how how much of a, a lowly creature and a worm I am. But in the eyes of God, we are precious. I'm so thankful that we have a God who we don't, we don't earn His, His love. He gives it to us freely of His own choice. He counts us special, not because we are special, but because He deems us to be special. Look with me in Psalm 139 and verse number 14. <clears throat> the Bible says this, I will praise Thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are Thy works, and that my soul knoweth <coughs> right well. Can I tell you this? It is something that is born into every man a desire to seek for God. A man left to himself without being the influence, influenced by the world will have a natural tendency to seek out a God. There's an innate nature in us because we understand that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are the works of God. That's why a missionary can go to some of the darkest parts of these uh, places that have not been touched by white men or the gospel and you'll find them having some form of worship because it is the instinct of man's soul to seek for God. Look with me in Genesis chapter number 1 for a moment. Genesis chapter number 1. Verse number 26. The Bible says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God created He him. Male and female, He created He them. And so we are created in God's image. We've been given an eternal soul. We are precious in God's sight. That's who I am. I'm not an accident of creation of the universe. I'm not an accident of a big bang process or 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 the process of billions of years and mistakes being made uh, in the in the reproduction of, of animals and creatures. I'm not a product of that. I was listening to a fellow years ago. He was debating. He was a creationist. He's debating um, a, a, a university, a whole group of folks in an auditorium. He gave his biblical account how that God created the earth in six days. About 1,400 years later, a great flood came, and Noah and only uh, the uh, members of his family were saved, and how that after the flood, the earth was repopulated. And uh, he went through his whole uh, deal about that, and then he had question and answer time. And a professor in the room got up and said, Do you really expect us to believe that every dog that's in existence today came from one set of dogs on Noah's Ark? And the creationist said, Sir, look what you believe. You believe that all the dogs that are came from a rock. Which one is harder to believe? The truth is, God created everything very, very special, didn't He? Very special. I want us to look at some more uh, clear-cut things. I'm going to to take some of these social issues, and we're going to look at some Scripture on them. Because I want us as God's people to know how we should deal with these. I'm going to start with the one on global warming. 
there's so much uh, going on about this. And, and you know, I, I'm not opposed to throwing your plastic uh, container in a recycle bin. <coughs> I'm not saying we ought to go out here and contaminate the world just for the sake of testing God at this. But, but on the other hand, we as God's people should not be fearful of these things. These are not things that we have to sit here and, and, and chew our nails and say, boy, in 50 years, uh, we're going to be, uh, this, this world's not even going to be in existence. It's going to destroy itself. Only if God decides it. Look with me in Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to look at several passages of Scripture that will help us with this. Colossians chapter number 1 and verse number 17. In fact, I'm going to back up to... Uh, Let's start in verse number 12. We'll read down through 17. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Now, we're speaking here about the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 13. In whom we have redemption through His blood. Again, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the forgiveness of sins. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature... For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and, I love this, for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things, what? Consists. The minute God stops being God, you and I will know because everything will cease to exist. Right now, God holds His own creation together by His own might and His own power. There's going to come a day, the Bible says, where the earth is going to melt with fervent heat. God's going to take His hand off of it. He's not going to restrain it anymore. He's not going to hold it into place any longer. The laws of physics will no longer be in place. But until that time comes, God holds everything in balance. Look with me in Hebrews chapter number 1. <coughs> Hebrews chapter number 1. Let's look in verse number 3. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 3. Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholdeth, notice this, all things... By the word of His power, when He Himself had purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. Who being the brightness of His glory, look verse 3, and the express image of His person, this is the phrase I want you to see, and upholdeth all things by the word of His power. God holds it together. There's only one person in all the world that can break the laws of nature and the laws of physics. Nature itself bows to His will. He can overturn the laws of physics, the laws of nature. He can go walking on a stormy sea in the middle of the storm. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that the path of the water in front of Him was calm. I don't know that it was. But He walked out there, didn't He? And unless we say, well, that was His spirit or that was His ghost, He had Peter step out, didn't He? Peter walked for a while. That's against the laws of nature, isn't it? That defies the laws of physics and gravity. Why? Because God's the one that made that law. He's the one that can amend it. He can suspend it when He wants to. When the, when the Israelites are fighting a battle and the enemy are on the run and the sun is going down, they can cry out to the Lord, sun and moon both stand still. And what happens? 
They stand still, don't they? Hezekiah decided he wanted to live a little longer, prayed to God, asked Him for more time, and God turned the sundial backwards, didn't He? Against physics, against nature. Why? Because they are in obedience to God. He's the one that created them. He's the one that molded them. And He has the power over nature. It does not matter how much man does to pollute the earth and to try to bring about global warming. If it's not time for God to destroy the world, guess what? He's going to, he's going to keep it in check. Why? Because He upholds all things by the word of His power. Look with me in Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. And again, I'm not using this to try to excuse poor stewardship of the earth. I'm simply saying this, as God's people, we certainly should not be fretting over it. We don't need to run to the polls and vote for a Green New Deal because of the fact we're worried that this thing's going to get out of hand. No, no, God's got it in control. We're okay. All right, look with me in Job chapter 38. Look with me in verse number 33. God, again, is questioning Job, and he's not expecting an answer. He's basically telling Job, He's asking him, canst thou do these things? And what he's saying by that is, I can do them, can you? That's really what his, his point is. Look what it says here in verse number 30, uh, 33. Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven? Canst thou set the dominion thereof in the earth? Canst thou lift up thy voice to the clouds that abundance of waters may cover thee? Canst thou send lightnings that they may go and say unto thee, Here we are? <laughs> You hear people talk about, well, uh, the sea's rising, and, and boy, if, if by in, in 30, 35 years or 15 years or some of them, three years, uh, Florida is going to be underwater. California is going to be underwater. I'm not worried about it. A God that can part the Red Sea and let the children of Israel walk through on dry land, I'm sure can keep Florida afloat. I'm sure the God that took a world that was covered by water, even to the highest mountain, blew it to the Arctic Poles and froze it there and said, you're going to stay there until time it's needed again. I'm sure he can keep the, the land afloat. I'm not worried about it. Psalm 135. Psalm 135. Verse number 6. <coughs> Psalm 135. Verse 6. To him that stretcheth out the earth above the waters, for His mercy endureth forever. To Him that made great lights, for His mercy endureth forever. The sun to rule by day, for His mercy endureth forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for His mercy endureth forever. He deals here with the issue of creation. He deals here with the fact that He's sustaining the world. He talks about the fact that he is, uh, he's, uh, uh, verse number uh, 6, that he stretched out the earth above the waters. All of this is held in check by his mercy. His mercy. He's holding back any judgment of sin upon the earth and, and, and making sure that these things don't happen because of his mercy. God is in control. Evolutionists would say we don't have any other option other than to regulate men, cause men to take uh, the, the bull by the horns and take the reins of this thing and get control of it, and for men to reverse their direction and try to give our, our world, our life, a little bit longer to live on this earth. A Christian looks at it and says, our God is in control. 
He's in control. The issue of the value of life, murder, suicides, abortion, all of them tied to this. Probably the greatest verse you could ever use of Scripture would be John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The fact that God valued life so much that He came to save them from their sin. In John chapter number 3, I read it the other day and used this, I think, two Sundays ago. We were preaching on this topic. The Bible says this in verse 17, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The Bible tells us that He came to seek and to save that which was what? Lost. If God had no purpose for man's life, if there was no value to man's life, why would He send His Son to die for us? Why not just let them go? Man's life is precious. Man's life is special. Look with me in Second Peter chapter three. I've, I've, this is one of those messages where I had to decide what not to bring because there was so much material in Scripture on this that I had to just pick out some of the better ones that were easy to see and easy to understand. But there is so much in Scripture regarding the value of life and how God values us. Look with me in Second Peter chapter number three, verse number nine. The Bible says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, were not willing that any should what? Perish! You think God does not value the life of man? I know He's speaking here about the man's eternal soul, but God doesn't want the man to perish. He's got His, he's got his best interest at heart. He values man as very precious. Look also in uh, Genesis chapter number 9. I think I got the right chapter here. Genesis chapter number 9. And verse number 6. Genesis chapter 9 and verse number 6. What about this side of heaven? Does God consider life of, the life of a man precious this side of heaven? Well, let's see what he says. Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man, shall his blood be shed. For the image of God made he man. In other words, if you take a man's life, you're to be, have your life taken too. Because that man was created in God's image. He values life even on this side of heaven. Look with me in Matthew chapter number 10. Matthew chapter number 10. And by the way, folks, our world needs to hear this. Because they're being told by their school teachers, they're being told by their college professors, they're even being told by our politicians that life doesn't matter. They come out with these groups. Certain lives matter. Black lives matter. Blue lives matter. Can I tell you this? All lives matter. God thinks all of them are precious. Matthew chapter number 10 Verse number 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father? But you know, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore. Ye are more valuable than the sparrows. He says the sparrows can't even fall to the ground without God knowing about it. God sees them. 
God's concerned about one sparrow falling to the ground. He says you're more valuable than that sparrow. There's a lot of value that God puts on the life of a man. Look with me in 2 Kings. Murder, murder is certainly devaluating life. Suicide is the result of devaluating life. I would say this. Abortion goes, I think, even a step beyond that. 2 Kings chapter 24. Not only does it devalue life, but it is an abomination in the fact that it is offensive. It is taking of an innocent life. In 2 Kings chapter 24, I want you to begin, if you will, reading with me in verse number 1. We're going to read down several verses here. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldees, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the children of Ammon, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which spake by his servants the prophets. Now, wait a minute. Judah is part of God's people, isn't it? In fact, out of the two, Judah is the more spiritual even between them and Israel. They at least were a little bit better than the nation than Israel. And here God says He's going to destroy Judah. He come against Judah to destroy it. What in the world do you think that they did in order to get this kind of a wrath from God? Let's see what he says. Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he did and also for the innocent blood that he shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. Don't tell me God does not have wrath and vengeance against those that would take innocent blood. God detests it. God can't stand it. He hates it. Look with me in Proverbs chapter number 6. And I was listening to somebody the other day, and I've, I've talked with people that, that are pro-abortion, and, and they, they, I've, I've shared so much with them, my heart and Scripture and everything I can. And I was listening to some guys uh, talking the other day on, on the, uh, an interview that was being done regarding the issue of abortion. And one of them said, well, uh, I think in the area of rape and, and a pregnancy results from that, that, that that lady ought to have the choice so she doesn't have to undergo all that. And the fellow on the other side of the table, I thought, good for him. He said, listen, don't take something evil and do something bad as a result of it. Why in the world would we punish the child? Put the punishment where it belongs. Put it on the rapist. Don't, don't, don't let these guys get a slap on the wrist and just get out of jail. Don't let them just walk because it's their first offense. That lady's life has been traumatized. That child's going to have a difficult life because of that rapist. Why make the child suffer? That doesn't make any sense to me. Somebody to create such a horrible and horrendous uh, evil act and then you punish somebody other than him for it. That doesn't make any sense. There are so many families out there that would absolutely love to adopt a child because they cannot have one of their own. You think, well, she's got to go nine months through this. I understand that. But the trauma of having an abortion on top of being raped is far worse 
the nine months of pregnancy and giving it off to a loving family that will raise that child. Look with me what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter number 6, verse number 17. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse number 17. The Bible, it was verse 16, says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. It's an abomination to God. It's wicked. It's ungodly. I know I'm preaching to the choir here tonight, but folks, when you raise a civilization on the philosophy of evolution, that there is no value to life, is it any wonder that our society sees abortion as something that's acceptable? When there is no value to it. When they don't believe that life begins until they are actually born, and some of them even believe that after they're born you ought to be able to commit the the abortion. And we call that murder. Look with me in Luke chapter number 1. And I want to put to rest this argument of when is their life. I'm going to be very clear about this. This is not my opinion. This is what the Bible teaches. Let's look in Luke chapter number 1. Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, had just been told that she was going to be the mother of Jesus. And she goes to visit her cousin. The Bible says in uh, verse number uh, 39, And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. An unborn child leapt when he heard the voice of Mary. And some people say, well, that was just a natural instinct or a a reflex. Babies do that. Their muscles are developing. It's just a reflex. No, no. Let's see what else it says. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost, and she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as thy voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb... Notice the next two words. For joy. The baby felt emotion. It was alive. In the womb. It wasn't a muscular reflex. There was a consciousness there. The power of God rested upon Mary and upon Elizabeth so much that the baby inside of her leapt with joy. Isn't that amazing? If we just look, sometimes the Bible just answers the question for us, doesn't it? We don't have to try to come up with logic and medical reasons. There's reason enough right there. The baby had understanding. Oh, I understand it was an infant. It probably, when it was born, certainly would not have been able to live on its own if it was just left to itself. And that's one of the big arguments. But I hope that's not the argument that they come up with at some point that allows it to happen because there's going to come a point in my life if God allows me to live long enough that I'm not going to be able to live by myself. I'm going to have to have somebody take care of me. And I hope that's not the standard for putting something to death because I don't want to die then. But this baby leapt in the womb for joy. For joy. 
Racism becomes a part of evolutionary teaching. Survival of the fittest. Some races stronger than others, some better than others, some bigger than others. Ninety-four times in our Bible, the Bible uses the phrase, respect of persons. And all ninety-four times, it is used in a negative sense. That God does not respect persons, neither should we. By the way, He doesn't respect persons in His blessings to them, neither does He respect persons in His judgment of them. Let's take a minute to look at this. Evolution will teach you that uh, it's just survival of the fittest. But let's look in Acts chapter number 10 for a moment. And I want to look at a few of these 94 times that God speaks of the fact of being a respecter of persons. Acts chapter 10 and verse number 34. The Bible says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Peter of all people understood this, didn't he? He's the one that, that uh, at first uh, was uh, uh, just preached to the Jews only. And God had to teach him some things about the Gentiles, that when it came to Christianity, there was no difference between the Jew and the Greek. That there was not to be a respecter of persons in those things. Look with me in Romans chapter number 10. Romans chapter number 10. And sad to say, I've known some Christian friends of mine over the years that grew up in some of the difficult days of our country where civil rights were a big issue and were being fought for. And I've met some folks, sad to say, that were Christians that named the name of Christ that were very racist. I'm thankful our God is not racist. I'm thankful He's willing to save anyone that will come to Him. Look with me in Romans 10 and verse number 12. <clears throat> For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto him that call upon him. Now this is interesting. Here's Paul, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He learned at the feet of Gamaliel. He, he, he knew uh, the, the prejudices of the Hebrew people, especially against the Gentiles. But when he came to this realization of biblical truth, that the gospel message was for all. That when it comes to Christianity and putting our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't care what the person's skin color is, they are my brother or sister in Christ. And I am to love them as such. By the way, if we teach this to the world today, it would get rid of racism. Look with me in Romans chapter 2. Verse number 11. Romans chapter 2, verse number 11. Once again, we find that Paul writes this, For there is no respect of persons, with this back at verse 10, again talking about the Jew and the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God. There's no difference. Jew, Greek, it doesn't matter. James chapter 2. James chapter 2. By the way, I give you a lot of verses here because I want you to see how prevalent these things are taught in Scripture. But the truth is, as a Christian, we only need one verse, don't we? We only need to be told once, or we ought to. James chapter 2, verse number 9. 
Notice what the view of God's view of one who does have respect to persons is. He says, but if ye have respect to persons, ye commit what? Sin. It's a strong statement, isn't it? Strong statement. And are convinced of the law as transgressors. Let's move. I've got a few more verses there, but I think the racism thing, I, I think that's clearly seen in Scripture. There's no doubt of it. Let's look at the issue of homosexuality. And uh, this. Uh, they, they started off with LGB, and then they went to LGB something, something, other letters, and then LGB, those other letters, and then a plus sign. I saw one the other day that was about nine or ten letters long. They just keep adding to it. So I put on here homosexuality and the rest of sexually deviant behaviors, all right? Because I don't know what all the letters they're using nowadays are. The evolutionists are going to say this. Your gender was decided by the randomness of the universe. There's nobody to answer to, and if you want to change it, change it. That's what evolutionists will teach you. Uh, You're your own God. Do your own thing. Make your own rules. Whatever makes you feel good. There are no absolutes except what's absolute for you. By the way, in the 80s, we were dealing with this, and I remember in high school doing a, a term paper on humanism in the schools. And I was shocked as I studied the issue of humanism in the 1980s at how prevalent it was in our society today, realizing where the end of that was going to go. And I, made, uh, I drew conclusions from the paper that I thought, man, that would be horrible if our world ever got to be that way, and we are that way now. Because humanism has so far advanced. The idea of man being their own God, making their own rules, and whatever man deems to be right is right, and whatever man deems to be wrong is wrong. Whatever feels good, uh, I will withhold from myself nothing. Uh, I only have one life, and once it's over, it's over. And again, that's what evolution teaches. And there is no afterlife, there is no God, there is no one to answer to. And because of all this, live however you want to do. Whatever makes you feel good, whatever you want to do. The lust of the flesh, pursue after it all you want. Creation says there's a God in heaven. And man has a sin nature that he must battle against. There's a sin nature that draws us to wickedness, and God tells us we're to put on the whole armor of God. We're to resist the devil and let him flee from us. We're to draw nigh unto God and let him draw nigh to us. We're to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. We're to come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. And that's what creation will teach man. God specifically created male and female. Turn with me. We've already read it once tonight, but let's turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, because I want you to see this very clearly. Genesis chapter 1, in verse number 27. The Bible says, So God created man in His own image, In the image of God created He Him, male and female created He them. So he's dealing here with the creation of man, specifically male and female. And he says that He created them in His image. Only as a man fulfills his role as a man can he accurately and biblically portray the image of God. Only as a woman is 100% woman and portrays her role as a woman can she adequately project the image of God in her life. You and I are to be lights on the earth. We're to be a reflection of God. 
And a man being a man is the best way we can reflect God, men. And a woman being a woman is the best way you can reflect God, ladies. He created us in His image. Male and female created He them. Very distinct. He goes on to talk about the fact later on in the book of Deuteronomy about even their apparel. Because there's to be a distinction between the apparel of a man and the apparel of a woman. Because the genders are not to be blurred. They're to be very distinct. Men have a very specific role in Scripture. God gives us that. If they're the head of a household, they are to love, cherish, and lead their wife and children as they follow Christ. They're to provide for them. They're to protect them. That's what God made men to do. By the way, men, God made us to work. The Bible says when God created Adam before the fall that He put him in the garden to bless or to tend it and to keep it. He was to work in the garden, labor in the garden. It was the fall of sin that led to working by the sweat of our brow. Now it's a lot harder to work. But we are most satisfied men when we work. You want to find a fellow that's grumpier than all get out? Let him stay home for about a week, not do anything. Sit on the couch and watch TV. These women are praying that they'll go out and do something. Mow the grass, do something. Get out of the house. Why? Because God made us to work, man. We are most satisfied and most fulfilled when we work. And then God created the woman to be a help for the man. And the Bible uses the word meet, M-E-E-T, which is an old English word that means literally suitable or fitting, a help that is suitable for him or fitting to him to help him accomplish the work that he is to do for the Lord. That's literally her role, to be a help to him in doing the work God's called him to do. She can do that, according to Proverbs 31, by tending to the home. The man going out to work, the woman tends to the household issues. We've gotten away from that in our society, haven't we? Now we've blurred the genders so much. Men becoming being raised lazy, not taught to be men. Many of them are raised in fatherless homes with no example. And men that are coming up and saying, I don't want to have all that responsibility to work and provide for my family. I'm the one that's got to provide for them. I'm the one that's got to be responsible for that. And we're raising generations of young men who are stepping back. They're looking at the great responsibility of being a man. They're stepping back from that saying, I don't want all that responsibility. A number of years ago, the women's rights group organization came about and women started saying, I want to be more like the man. I don't know why, folks, ladies. I don't know why. Uh, men have to work. They have to provide. They have to protect. I don't know why you'd want that. A lot of ladies saying, oh, I, I want what that guy's got. I want, the, I want to be just like the man. Well, she steps away from being all that God created her to be. God created two distinct genders. He gave them each specific roles. And if they each fulfill their specific role and come together as a husband and wife, they complete each other in a way that it is a perfect union in Christ. It's when they start getting out of their roles that there begins to be problems. Begins to have problems. 
We're living in a day where our society has so blurred the idea of men and women, one man, one woman, marriage, a, a solid home to bring up children and to rear them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We've destroyed the whole nucleus in our societies today. Why? Because if we're evolved, we're just a bunch of animals, what does it matter? If everything's done at the end of life and we clock out of here and nothing else happens after that, what does it matter? If there is no value to life, what does it matter? I can go out here and live the way I want to live. And it, it began a long time ago in the 60s when they started having all this uh, uh, immorality that took place outside of uh, marriage. And they started shacking up together and living together. And it's to the point now, and I think I shared this a few weeks ago in church, that even among Christian people who are surveyed, that it is expected for there to be physical immorality taking place in a dating couple by the third date. And that's according to Christian people. Our society has so swallowed this this devaluation of life and the devaluation of there being a God in heaven that sets the rules and has given us moral laws to follow and a book and a Bible that, that directs our steps. We've so far departed from it and we've, we've had our faith undermined and we've begun to question the things that are taught in this book. And we've read, we've read them we said, oh, I see it, there it is, uh, thou shalt not... Commit adultery. Now, there should not have, we shouldn't be fornicating. And all of these things that are in Scripture, we find things that men ought to be not lying with men and women with women. We see it in Scripture. We see that men aren't supposed to be killing one another. They're not supposed to be committing murder and abortion. We see all this in Scripture. And then we say, but you know what? We think we know better. We think we know better. And even though the Bible teaches it, I, I, I'm sure that there's some leeway in there. I, I'm sure God's not that strong on that issue. Because we've been taught, even in our, in our society of Christian circles, and this is why I, I just do not like, and I, I'm just going to come out and say it, I know it's on Facebook, I don't care, I'm going to say it. I do not support, nor do I like, nor do I believe in public education. You can take that for what it's worth. When my children were born, there was no question my kids were going to go to high school. They were going to get a four-year degree in college. I'll be real frank with you. I'm kind of glad they're homeschooled now and not even in college. I was talking to somebody the other day about this. I said, you know, I said, I don't think my son Jonathan's going to go to college. I said, I'd rather him be a man who works hard studies hard, if he wants to take a few courses or read a few books or watch a few videos online to learn how to do something, that's fine. But I don't want him indoctrinated. Because I don't care how strong of a Christian you are, if you put yourself in that kind of an environment for that long of a period of time, it will affect you. It will. Folks, we are living in a day where we have even in our Christian circles, begin to let our morals slide. The world certainly has. And I mark it down to a prominent view of the fact that we are nothing more than a universal hiccup of a mistake. And that's what we're being taught. And that's what we're teaching our children. You're just an animal. You're no different than any other animal. 
There is no absolute. There is no moral right or wrong. It's whatever you think it to be. Folks, we have now had generation after generation, and it has so affected our society that it is now now permeated into our churches and into the pews of our churches that are Bible-preaching churches, Bible-teaching churches. To where we wink at sin, we swallow the lies of the establishments of society, we begin to fret and worry and lose our faith that God is in control of these